Welcome to episode 112 of The Winning Agenda. Tonight, our panellists include the least punctual bioroid of all time, Wilfred E. Horrig. It must be something to do with my circuitry. And all the way from Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth's Kingdom over in the UK, we have Dave Hoyland. Hi, everyone. Welcome back, Dave. Uh, it's been a while since we've had you on the show. We... Loved having a chat to you at, at Worlds and catching up with you and Mark and the rest of the UK crew. Uh, how are things over in sunny England these days? Uh, not particularly sunny, but other than that, uh, everything's pretty good. Um, in the middle of store champ season, so it's all, all fun and exciting. That's good. And have you been along to many store champs yet? Um, I took some time out from Netrunner after Worlds, so... Um, I didn't go to any before Christmas. Um, I've been to two so far this year, um, so I'm not kind of probably going as all in as I did uh, last year in store champs because uh, I burnt out quite early on in kind of tournament season. So um, yeah, just taking it a bit easier than I did last year. Trying to save up a bit of that energy for regionals and nationals. Yeah. Cool. Uh, and tonight our conversation is actually going to be a bit of a retrospective something a bit different we've sort of just been doing pack reviews for the last few weeks it feels like uh pretty much every time we sit down to do an episode there are new cards to talk about but this week for for one uh, for the first time in quite a while there isn't so what we're going to do instead is take a look back at the flashpoint cycle which we just concluded with our card discussion of uh, the quorum pack last week and we're going to, each of us tonight is going to choose our favorite card from each faction that came out in the Flashpoint cycle. And we're going to talk to you a little bit about why we like that card or dislike that card. The criteria is very open. Uh, it could be a card that we really enjoy or just a card that made a big splash in the metagame. Uh, and we want to talk about the impact that it had because um, this cycle has certainly changed the game since it, since it started. And a lot of the cards that are in it have certainly defined the way that we've played the game for the last year. So on that note, I think we might just dive straight in with Hus Bioroid. So we'll go Wilfie, Dave, then myself for this one. So Wilfie, of course, we couldn't let anyone else other than you go first for your home faction. Uh, what was your favorite card to come out of the, uh, the factories of your people this year? Um, well, I think there's some... Um stereotyping going on there but we'll just ignore that that's a topic for another time maybe another episode of the winning agenda we can talk about human biroid relations uh this week we can talk about my favorite hp cards and i'm going to sort of use my opportunity of going first <laughs> to choose not just one card but actually four cards so you guys have nothing to choose from <laughs> Uh, in choosing all the Fairchilds. So I think that they sort of all can be discussed together just because of how um, similar they are to one another and how they evolve. You see Fairchild evolving as the packs come out. But I thought it was really inter interesting how the Byrod mechanic especially leads itself to this sort of uh, evolution in power just because you go from Fairchild 1 which costs the least and is a regular Byroid, has the 1.0 Byroid ability, up to Fairchild 2 in the the next pack or maybe the pack after, uh, which is a bit stronger about regular strength 
a regular mid-range ice, whereas Fairchild 1 was more of a pop or a pop-up window to Fairchild 3, which sort of defined Worlds or was one of the new cards that we thought was really interesting going into Worlds, just because of how efficient it was for its cost being fairly large, to Fairchild no, uh, no version number, which sort of uh, breaks away from all the others in being a bit more like Wotan in the sense that's a not a biroid necessarily in the regular sense that we think of it, but a super, like, has a bunch of Enderun subroutines and is super big. So I thought that was a really interesting way to use um, the cycle, the, the way in which you get six starter packs in a cycle and they each come out sequentially. I thought the Fairchild, the evolution of Fairchild was a really interesting way to play with that just because each of the Fairchilds are quite different in their use cases and decks, but they all have a central mechanic which ties them together. Excellent. Yeah, I think we can all agree that that was pretty awesome card and cycle design there. Dave, what was uh, your favorite or top HB card that's remaining? I know you've just had four taken out from underneath you there, but are there any left? Yes. So I'm... I was kind of looking at this from a kind of a most powerful kind of uh, card point of view. So, mm-hmm. um, unsurprisingly, kind of on my list of things to talk about potentially was Fairchild, um, because they're pretty great. Um, so, I think I think I'm going to go with um, Violet Level Clearance. So, this is a very one-dimensional card in the sense that I don't think it's good in very many decks. Um, but I think it's probably very good in CI. Um, I've not done a huge amount of testing with it, but I know some people have. And um, in CI decks, and it's probably a, you know, mostly kind of seven-point combo, but there will be other types of CI decks, such as uh, um, kind of hasty relocation and things like that, that um, could be used in. But it, it really does add a lot to kind of the CI game. Um, so I think it's going to be kind of a very powerful card in that one deck type. Cool. Uh, the next card is my favorite card, and that actually, other than Fairchild 3, which was probably my first choice, is Friends in High Places. This one has had a lot of people talking over the last little while since it was released in Martial Law. And I really like this because it gives HB a chance to play a remote game in a way that the runner isn't necessarily inevitably going to be able to get over the top of them. So oftentimes it's harder for the corp to be able to draw into threats, install threats and have them working. It's hard for the corp to do that repeatedly than it is for the runner to just get in and trash them. If you're playing not a sort of spammy, I'm not playing any ice in front of my remotes, but if you're trying to play them through one remote and run the runner through that over and over again, I think this just gives those sort of controly corp decks more of an opportunity to interact in the mid game and keep the pressure up on the runner to say, well, you can't just get in and trash my Adonis and my Eve and my breaker Bay and keep me poor. I'm going to be able to recur those things. So you're going to have to find another way to beat me, or you're going to have to just keep coming through my remote over and over and over again. And the cost of me, the cost to me of putting that together is a lot less than the cost to you of making that run. So I really like uh, Friends in High Places for that reason. It could have been more influence. I do like it in that 
HB sense and probably Wayland, which is the other faction that wants to do that build up a remote and then score through it later. Those are the two factions that I like seeing it. I don't really like seeing it recurring um, some of the you know, political assets and um, some things in NBN and Jinteki that can potentially be a bit degenerate and people don't necessarily enjoy that. Um, but at least we have Solset Slums. I think we can say that. Certainly when the political assets were released, we didn't have Solset Slums and it was a, a little bit difficult to consider how we were ever going to deal with that threat. But you know, friends in high places doesn't get around slums. So if you are facing asset spam recursion using friends in high places, you do at least have an out. But I really like friends in high places, not for that reason, but for what it does for those controller decks. The next faction is Jinteki. So Dave, we might take you first for this one. Uh, What is your top Jinteki card for the Flashpoint cycle? Um, This is a tricky one. Um... I think, I think from a pure PowerPoint view, just I mean, it's got to be DNA Tracker. I mean, yeah, it, it's, I mean, yes, it's expensive res, but uh, it's such a powerful card. Um, high strength. Um, you know, it it's very difficult to break it with something like Yog to make it effective, uh, efficient to break. Um, it's got it's multi sub. Um, I think the only thing that can make it better would be for it to have a fourth sub of any kind um, because then it kind of makes it David proof and, um, and makes it harder to be trashed by those by kind of Dumblefork decks um, whereas at the moment you've got to kind of try and protect it with other ice um, but, but yeah it's we've seen a lot of kind of really good code gates in this cycle um, seems to be kind of above the curve um, but yeah definitely DNA tracker um, Though if one of you two doesn't mention uh, potential unleashed, I'll be a little bit upset. <laughs> you can't have two, Dave. <laughs> I know that's why I'm telling you. On the YouTube <laughs> uh, DNA trackers. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, DNA trackers definitely a beast. Uh, Wilfie, what's your top Jinteki card for the cycle? Um, well, I think I have. I was. I think it's a toss-up for me. Uh, I won't say that because I don't want to influence your choice, Jesse, regardless of what you choose. Yeah, I feel like I'm but getting the pressure piled to... on here. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> I think I would have to choose hmm, Hasty Relocation. Um, I think Hasty Relocation is a pretty interesting card because it gives um, the, I guess especially the CI decks but really any sort of accelerated diagnostics combo I've seen it in um, like a in Nearth Hub as well, and like if you can get the influence to work, which is very difficult, but just in that sense, cards which interact on that plane are fairly difficult to find. Like it does something which not a lot of other cards do in that respect, and it's I think efficiently costed enough that it can be good in that space, which is a fairly I think rare thing for a card to do. So I like it for the way it enables um, a different access to those decks, just because those decks are so different from what we consider to be standard Netrunner. It's also not as secure or not as certain as Power Shutdown, which I like. Sort of, It allows you to play Accelerated Diagnostics profitably, but not with as much certainty as, we, as Power Shutdown does, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool. Um, 
My top Jinteki card for the cycle, uh, surprise, surprise, my first two choices have already been taken, and I'm going to disappoint Dave here because I don't actually really like Potential Unleashed very much. Uh, I'm going to choose Chiashi. It's a, a very new card, and it's pretty untested at this point, and it's not necessarily particularly powerful, but what I do really like about it is that we are getting more large ice that is impactful because one of the things that I feel is really missing... Um, or has been missing probably in the throughout the Mumbad cycle and the early part of this cycle before we saw some of the impactful ice released was decks that really relied on ice to score, but also uh, to build servers that were difficult for runners to get into. It was we sort of got to the point where it was proliferation of remote servers that was the way that you tried to outtax the runner. So this card has enough subroutines that do enough things for it to be worth resing even if it's not a particularly um, important server that you're trying to protect, as in even if it's just a single access early in the game, even if it's just a, an asset that you've got behind it that you don't really mind the runner accessing, there are going to be times when you want to raise this, which means to me that it's got some teeth uh, and it's quite a powerful card, but it's also got that end the run, uh, which is kind of cool. So that, you know, whether the runner breaks it or not, they're taking... Um, taking some damage from the from the um ai ability particularly um but additionally if they can't break it they're still taking four damage and ending the run so yeah i like it i think it's a a big piece of ice that does what you want big pieces of ice to do and i like to see more of this stuff in the game in all factions the yeah yep sorry you want to say something about that Mm -hmm. no i just think that yeah she actually is a very interesting choice um just because on what you said earlier it's the combination of having an end the run and also being detrimental enough to the runner that it's worth resing even if there's something you don't want to protect and i mean of course it costs 12 so you sort of have to expect that for it to be playable but i think it's not something that we've seen too much especially recently yeah yeah and i'd like to certainly see the the game keep going in that direction um dave yeah go on uh, it costs 12, you know that, right? Like, yeah. That's a ridiculous thing. Like, I mean, there's just so much ice destruction um, in the game at the moment that, like, it might be something that turns up kind of later that's much more relevant, but it doesn't feel like in the current meta game it's particularly good. Um, yeah, no, like I said, I, do, I don't expect to see it in decks right now. It's just, I feel like it's a recognition by the designers that if you're going to be paying 12 for an ice, that means because of the way the economy of the game's set up that your other servers are going to be vulnerable most of the time. Yeah. You know, If you raise this on a remote, your HQ and R&D are going to be vulnerable. So there's no reason why this card shouldn't do something to the runner. You know, like If you're paying 10 for Hadrian's Wall, you're just so far behind. If you're paying 12 for this, at least you've done something to the runner that will slow them down and slow their tempo as well as your own. So this card in itself might not be good enough, but I hope that more cards like this are made um, and then hopefully one of them will be playable at some point in the future. Yeah. So it, it feels like it's kind of like you want it to be playable uh, rather than, you know, <laughs> I can see any reason that anytime soon it will be. Obviously the metagame changes pretty quickly. So, the one card we haven't discussed for Jinteki, which I found really interesting when I first saw it, was Enforcing Loyalty. Yeah. Which, 
you know, I've not seen it used in a, you know, really effective way yet. But the ability to trash kind of, you know, non-faction cards seems really powerful, and mm. I, I'd be surprised if we don't see uh, that in a deck at some point. Maybe not soon, but at some point, because it seems a very powerful effect. It does have a few drawbacks, though, doesn't it? I mean, I tried to play it a couple of times, particularly because there's only one influence. But the combination of the trash costs, the double, and the trace, yeah. I think means that it's pretty hard to fit into turns. The double drawback is definitely something you can get around if you're using it to snipe a Nexus or a Breaker or something like that and not trying to use it to combo by killing a Plascrete and combo kill someone on the same turn, then the double drawback doesn't matter as much. But I still think having to be ahead of them on money and um, the fact that it's trashable from your hand while you're saving up or trashable from R&D, I'm not sure. Yeah, no, I think they're both very valid points. Uh, The next faction is NBN. Uh, Wilfie, do you want to take this one there's certainly a couple of nbn cards that have seen some play this year here which of them uh piqued your interest the most uh sure i mean there are a couple obvious choices but since i'm gonna go first i guess i'm gonna go with something which is a little less obvious which is observe and destroy which is a card that i originally panned in asset review that then turned out to be quite good um i suppose the sort of disconnect between how good I thought it was and how good it actually turned out to be is that I didn't um, think as much that you, if you were playing a deck where Observe and Destroy was going to be good, it was going to be because your whole game plan was going to be landing a tag that they eventually couldn't get rid of and thus at some point you could close the counts them. Like, that's sort of the use case for this card. And having that be a primary game plan like it was in most of the um, yellow decks which had boom that meant that you could yeah if you could set up a situation where observe and destroy was going to land a lot of the time then its ability to help you win the game was extremely powerful Um, and so I guess that's something that we should that I maybe could have thought of a bit more which is that if it's so strong that it allows you to do something it allows you to win in situations which where it's really hard to win then maybe you know it deserves a little more consideration than i gave it Hmm. and dave i mean this card is sort of well very similar to enforcing loyalty but has some very different drawbacks how did you find this i know that you tried playing a few games at this with a deck in the lead up to worlds so the Obviously, what kind of a lot of people know is kind of Benny's uh, uh, sync deck. So yeah, I, I played it on the, in the lead up to Worlds, and it's definitely a good deck. Um, it, it has some very bad matchups. Um, you know, any, any kind of link shaper, for example, it really struggles with um, because a all of its you know ice and you know a lot of its aggression is uh, trace based, um, but also um, if they're running clot, that takes away one of your uh, kind of main ways to uh, score kind of breaking news and things like that. So um, I find that there was just sometimes you sat down and thought, I don't think I can win this, um, or it was very hard, um, which is the only reason I I didn't play it. That and probably I didn't have enough kind of testing for Worlds. 
Um, it's a very interesting card, and it's probably very skill intensive because there's so many kind of requirements for it to be used. So, um, fair play to the, the guys coming up with it is very good. Hmm. And, and what was your top card from NBN for this cycle, Dave? So, at, at the moment, the card I'm most impressed with, them, which I'm going to talk about, is not one of the obvious ones. Um, so, one of the cards I'm most impressed with at the moment, um, and this could just be current metagame thinking, but uh, is actually IP block. So, I've been doing some testing with... Uh, recently and because there's a lot of AI breakers around so we're seeing kind of a bit more at man in the matter because of uh, Cipher, Cipher, whatever you call it, um, and obviously you know Faust being quite popular um, in a variety of different uh, kind of wizard type archetypes um, or Val archetypes then this does an insane amount of work um, especially against things like um, Dumble decks where they don't want to be tagged because of their resources. Um, it's really taxing on them for a two credit res to give them a tag and kind of force uh, three cards for Faust or something like that. You know, it's a, it's a really good trade um, when you combine it with some other things such as, you know, Data Ward and things like that. You can make some really insane servers. Um, so, uh, still early days, but, you know, it's been one of the yellow cards that I kind of looked at and thought this is pretty rubbish, but it's been really, really good. That's great. And I think we are obviously, none of us have chosen NBN controlling the message or hard hitting news. And we can probably as a group, just talk about those and the impact they had on the world's metagame. But the card I'm actually going to choose is Data Ward, which is one that you mentioned <laughs> there. And it's another large piece of ice that, I was really pleased to see released because it's not six credits is a lot different to eight and a lot of the similar ice to this we've seen costed at eight or more. So to have this and Fairchild in this cycle costed at six, I think was a really good thing for ice design. It's got an impactful subroutine, sorry, an impactful on encounter ability that is reasonably taxing for the runner so that if you're not, if you're if you haven't succeeded in tagging them, your six cost investment in this ice doesn't do nothing. Like you can still res it and have it do something, even if you haven't landed a hard hitting news or a mid seasons or something like that. But once you have, and once the run has gone into tag me mode, having four subroutines means that it's David proof. Means that it's really expensive at strength eight for any breaker to break, uh, and you're getting a lot more out of it at six credits than than. Uh, sorry, it's costing the runner a lot more to get through it than the six credits that you've spent resing it. So this this is exactly where I like to see this sort of ice go. It's, a, I guess, a I think a more sophisticated version of information overload in that, you know, it might not be as much of a blowout in the best case scenario, but it's a lot more um, consistent in that it always does something. And I think that it's a lot easier to play around when you're either ahead or behind, which is what I like to see in ice. So I guess before we move on from NBN, it would be remiss of us in a cycle wrap up, not to talk about controlling the message and hard hitting news, which was central to the, the world's metagame and have really redefined the game around tags. 
Um, and also, the, I think controlling the message also in terms of the tempo of corp decks and how quickly they can put pressure on the runner. Wilfie, you've played a lot of controlling the message. I know, Dave, you have as well. Um, but Wilfie, first, how did you... How do you think that these two cards together um, helped to redefine the game? And what are your closing thoughts now that we've come to the end of the cycle? Yeah, so I think one thing that you said a while ago, what Jesse was uh, sort of stood out to me in that you said that Hathi News was probably the best ice that's been printed in a long time in the sense that it, um, in the early game, or not necessarily in the early game, but specific, uh, especially in the early game, it really... Um, disincentivizes the runner to run just because of how dangerous it is to get into range of an early hard-hitting use. Like, it's sort of the mid-seasons issue pushed up to 10, where if you run early, sure, you might score an agenda, but if that puts you vulnerable vulnerable to mid-seasons, it's just better not to run at all. So, yeah, like, in terms of that... Hard-hitting news has definitely had an enormous impact on the metagame, and controlling the message has so has been its partner in crime in the sense that controlling the message really pushes you to play with cards that assets, especially which give you um, early that you want to res early and give you bonuses consistently throughout the game just because the controlling the message ability can let them sit there for so long or have the runner forced to trash them so both of those cards sort of give the runner two bad choices which is what you want in all of your cards but especially in combination with the political assets i think those three things have formed together to create something which you know some people might rightfully call oppressive to many runner archetypes but they've definitely um been the defining factor of the flashpoint cycle at least to me and definitely on the corp side and how about you dave what's your experience with those cards been and and how do you see them on reflection now so they are undoubtedly you know great cards um and as Wilfie said, they've definitely kind of d- defined the meta. Um, one of the things I find quite interesting is that I don't think they're anywhere kind of as powerful um, as they were probably kind of at the, towards the end of uh, 2016. So both people have come up with you know solid counters to them, or solid counters have been released later on in the uh, cycle. Um, and even cards that are kind of just coming out in the last pack, you know, are really, really strong against these cards. So there seems to be lots of kind of counter cards in the pack, whether that obviously they don't always come out in time for big events such as Worlds, but the, the cycles themselves seem to be um, quite well balanced with, uh, you know, kind of counter cards if, for, for some of the strong cards. And I guess from a flavor perspective, it sort of made sense that early on NBN was controlling the message. You know, they created the news about all of this and they splashed it everywhere and they were sort of in control of the story. But then as uh, things have gone on and the government's reestablished control and people have gone back to their ordinary lives, um, they've, the, the impact of that has sort of lessened and uh, the hard-hitting news doesn't do as much anymore. So it's definitely a flavor win as well, don't you think, Wilfie? Oh, yes. my God. 
the next faction uh, is Wayland, the the, uh, the evergreen, much loved Wayland Consortium. So, Wilfie, what, what's your um, what's your number one Wayland card for this cycle, Wilfie? My favorite card from this cycle, Wayland card from this cycle, is definitely Prysac. Uh My favorite thing about Prysac is that it really embodies everything Wayland stands for, like security, like flavorfully security. Of course, is a big Wayland thing, but also tags and meat damage, and also it's uh, sort of traps that um influence the runner in more aggressive ways is sort of a Jinteki and a Wayland thing especially um so in terms of Prysec it's probably its main influence is that it's the first upgrade trap that we've seen that's really been playable so far which adds a a big dynamic to how remotes play out especially just because with two cards in a server you don't necessarily know that one's going to be a, a like a defensive upgrade or something it could also be a trap um so that's been had a really big big impact on um the metagame so far and it's especially boosted wayland's playability quite significantly and you were splashing one of these in your world's deck um did that go well for you yeah in in the sync deck that we both played at worlds yeah. i spent zero influence on on price and i think that went quite well <laughs> yeah um yeah i i really enjoyed price as well for all the reasons you've mentioned it's its playability has dropped off a little bit as tags have been become easier for the run, for runners to deal with and because we're in such a tag centric metagame this suffers from the fact that most runners are playing ways to efficiently deal with tags but while it was somewhat of a surprise and and a new threat it was a really enjoyable thing to be able to present not only one threat from your asset or agenda in a remote, but two from having this in there as well. It certainly opened up some new ways to attack runners and also some ways to deliver uh, unexpected shocks to runners outside of uh, factions that they would normally expect that sort of thing. Dave, did you have much experience with Prysec? Uh, a limited amount. Um, I've played it a bit during, um, I think it was during recent regional season, or at least uh, as an update to one of my regional winning decks, when I was playing kind of a post most wanted list to kind of butcher shop deck. Um, the idea was just to kind of go fast, and when they made a, a mistake because you were going fast, kill them. Um, yeah. So. And in that kind of deck, where you're just kind of jamming stuff into remotes and going, do you want to check? Um, and you're putting them under a lot of kind of time pressure, um, then that works really well. So, Yeah. And what was your your favorite Wayland card from this cycle? Um, I guess Boom. Probably better. In oh, your I, can't let, I can't let you have Boom if you're going to talk about it like that. Please choose something else. <laughs> okay, I mean, the, the problem with Boom is it's probably better in yellow, but um, one of the cards um, that I think is potentially at least okay is um, Sapper. Um, I've obviously, I think Archangel is really good, um, and Sapper does fill kind of, you know, a similar kind of criteria, which is it punishes early aggression, you know, early medium digs, um, and just kind of can kind of stop a threat without actually you needing to do anything. Um, I'm not convinced this is as good as Archangel, but uh, 
it's certainly an interesting uh, card for Wayland. That I do, do think it adds something to the faction. I'm going to give a, a dishonorable mention to uh, uh, sorry uh, to CI Fund and also to Door to Door, which I think are two of the worst cards that I've seen in a long time. <laughs> but I, my card is going to be Boom, <laughs> the aforementioned Boom, which Dave was somewhat reluctantly choosing. I'm going to choose with Gusto because I think it's a great card. Uh, it was a defining card in the world's metagame as well, and it has in pushed. Yellow. In yellow, which was somewhat disappointing, and, and that is worth talking about. The three influence, was it enough? I think a lot of people noted quite rightly at the time that Scorched Earth is four, why would this be three? Particularly because you don't necessarily need two of these even in your deck to kill the runner, whereas you definitely need two Scorched Earths in your deck to be able to kill a runner. So it doesn't really make sense that this is less influence. But uh, that being said, the fact that it worked so well with... 24-7 news cycle and hard-hitting news was potentially oppressive, but certainly quite enjoyable when you were the one uh, delivering the missile into Wizard's apartment. Um, and it is a powerful, very, very powerful card that I think is quite well balanced by its drawbacks. We've spoken about that at length uh, in our discussions of Boom in the past, but just to recap very briefly, the fact that you need two tags, the fact that it costs an extra click which severely limits your ability to do tricky things on the turn that you are trying to kill them uh and the fact that it's trashable all combine to mean that there are enough ways i think for the runner to deal with it or play around it or make it hard for the corp to play it effectively uh that it is reasonably fair and we certainly haven't seen it dominate the metagame early on when it was first released a lot of people were playing it a lot of people died to it and people have now figured out ways to deal with it. And I think that's the hallmark of a good card and a good card that influences the metagame in a, in a good way. Does anyone else have any thoughts on Boom or any other Whalen cards before we move on? Wilfie, do you want to choose an actual Whalen card to discuss? Uh, no. No? Okay. Uh, <laughs> sure. If I have to. Um, no. No? Okay. Uh, that, is quite, no. that is quite telling, right? Like we found it pretty easy to to pick something like even a top three for every other faction. Um, it's a little disappointing that Wayland still haven't got you know a good selection of cards in this cycle. Um, it is Dave. There are a couple that stand out, and there are a couple that are serviceable. Like Morsalis is pretty good. It's not great. Bulwark is serviceable. Veritas is I don't think very good, but some people seem to like it. But beyond that. Um, I don't think a lot of the other cards that are trying to push interesting strategies in Wayland or different strategies really are even close to being good enough. So that is very disappointing because you can't really say that for the other factions. Yeah, and for me, the factions, you know, significantly further behind the others. Um, and... I think the, the reason is it's lacking a lot of kind of core, you know, like just basic good cards. Um, mm. And what we seem to be getting is, yeah, we do get some good cards, but nowhere near enough um, in comparison to what the other factions are getting to keep them kind of in line. Um, whereas actually they need more, not not, not, not less. Um, and also they, they don't need these kind of random kind of combo cards or um, you know, I know the next cycle we're going to see lots of kind of things around sacrificing agendas to do other cool stuff, 
and maybe I'll be wrong, but I think we, you know, we might just need some basic good ice, good, you know, economy options or whatever um, for Wayland to kind of come back. Um, you know, certainly as a faction rather than like just Blue Sun being good, or you know, for it to be kind of, you know, the, to be a few playable IDs. Yeah, like I gave a dishonorable mention to CI Fun and Door to Door, but I could e- easily have targeted Stock Buyback, which is probably the worst of the terminal cards. Could have targeted Liquidation, which is a waste of a card slot. Um, could have targeted uh, Builder of Nations, which is by far the worst of the cycle of identities that was released for the corpse in this cycle. And I would go so far as to say is actually the worst ID in the game, the worst corp ID in the game. Um, so that, that is really, really disappointing to see, and hopefully that turns around with Terminal Directive and Red Sands. Yeah, hopefully. And, uh, and maybe Terminal Directive will be um, the sort of box where they'll get more of a um, kind of a basic uh, ice economy sort of package that they need. Yeah. Let's wait and see. We can, we can only hope. Uh The next faction is, of course, no faction, and that's the neutral corp cards. Wilfie, what was your favorite neutral corp card? Oh, you've already done one. Dave, what was yours? Oh, no, come on. Can (laughs) I get an actual neutral one if I didn't get a Wayland one? Sure, okay. (laughs) No, that's fine. If you guys want, uh, you can talk about neutral. Uh, Dave, you can go first. Um, The only thing I was going to talk about was uh, Macrophage. Um, Again, seems very strong in the current meta. Um, where medium seems to be kind of the answer to most situations, um, and people will adapt and play other kind of uh, multi-access and things like that. But um, just seems quite a quite an interesting kind of tech card that I think will turn up um, in quite a few decks, um, probably on and off in various matters. Great, my top. Neutral card was Sandberg. This one, a lot of people, again, hated, which to me says that it's reasonably powerful because people tend to hate things that they struggle to deal with initially. But there certainly are ways to deal with Sandberg, and I think the drawbacks inherent in the card are enough to mean that you can put pressure, as the runner, you can put pressure on the corp to make their Sandberg less effective. But from the corp's perspective... Having something to work up to in the late game, again, is another tool for those control corp decks who really had nothing like this in the past that could, other than IT department, which required a lot more commitment, they had nothing like this that required very little investment from the corp, gives a passive ability and a, quite a, can be quite a significant boost to all of their ice. Doesn't make it impenetrable, but certainly improves the equation again of that game plan where you're asking the runner to continually run through a remote server to prevent you from winning. And for that reason, I think Sandberg is really well designed. It doesn't give you any benefit until you have at least 10. And even then the benefit is not great. Um, and you also factor into the cost of this card has to, of course, be the f- cost of keeping an extra remote server. But the fact that it's flexible and additionally flexible now that we have friends in high places so that you can use a Sandberg in your first remote server earlier in the game and then trash it when you install an agenda or something else, and move it into your second remote server using friends in high places, means that I think it's now got a level of flexibility that gets around that drawback of needing the second remote server that might mean it's worth revisiting. Of course, River Mill still hangs over its head, but I really like uh, the card and what it does and the options that it gives to those control corp decks. 
Wilfie, did you still want to go on a, uh, sure, a neutral? Yeah. yeah, I'll talk about NASX, which I think is... It's not hard to see that a card's playable when it's basically an upgrade of another previously playable card, but I just think that a lot of the pieces NASX brings to the table are fairly interesting, that it both allows you to sort of go a bit more all-in on it in building your deck around it, which... You know, it, it'll be hard to make that work, but it's fairly strong. I Like, it, it's the upside is fairly high, but also it just allows you to... It's just a very efficient economy card, no matter how you use it, and I think those kind of cards are good for the game in general. Great. And that's all we have time for tonight on The Winning Agenda. Thank you for joining us. If you want to get in touch with us or by email, you can send us an email to thewinningagenda at gmail.com. If you want to check us out on Patreon and send a few dollars our way, you can head to www.patreon.com slash thewinningagenda. If you want to check us out on Twitter, head to at winningagenda. And if you want to check out our website, you can go to www.thewinningagenda.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will be back next week when we discuss the runner half of the cycle. Hope you can join us then. This has been Jesse Marshall with Dave Poyland and Wilkie Horrig for the Winning Agenda.